Welcome to Focus in Sound, the podcast series from the Focus newsletter published by the Burroughs Welcome Fund. I'm your host, science writer Ernie Hood. On this edition of Focus in Sound, we welcome a married couple of researchers, both of whom have been recipients of Burroughs Welcome Fund grant support, Drs. Alice Chen Plotkin and Joshua Plotkin. Of course, one of the major challenges in a scientific career is an ability to balance the demands of work life and home and family life. And you can multiply those challenges when you have two active scientific careers going on in one family. Add in a couple of kids to make it even more interesting, and you'll see why the Plotkins story is downright inspirational. Both Alice and Josh conduct fascinating, valuable research, which we will hear about, and at the same time, they've made it all work without compromise. Dr. Alice Chen Plotkin is an assistant professor of neurology at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. She earned a BA in English at Harvard University, an MSc in biology at Oxford University, and her MD at Harvard Medical School in 2003. Alice specializes in research on neurodegenerative diseases, particularly Parkinson's disease and frontotemporal dementia. She was awarded a Burroughs Welcome Fund Career Award for Medical Scientists in 2008. Dr. Joshua Plotkin is an Associate Professor of Biology and Computer Science at the University of Pennsylvania. He earned his A.B. in Mathematics at Harvard, during which time he spent a year at Oxford as a visiting student. He received his Ph.D. in Applied and Computational Mathematics from Princeton University in 2003. He was awarded a Burroughs Welcome Fund Career Award at the Scientific Interface in 2005. Alice and Josh, welcome to Focus and Sound. We certainly want to discuss your scientific pursuits, but first I think our listeners would really enjoy hearing your story as a couple. How you met, how you've managed to converge your careers and actually end up working at the same institution, and how you've managed to maintain a thriving family life at the same time. So, Josh, I understand you and Alice met while you were in college, not even planning on academic scientific careers. Tell us about that. Well, that's right, Ernie. We met in college when it wasn't even clear that we would become scientists. And as a result, we've known each other through thick and thin as we became scientists over the past decade or so. More, Josh. Fifteen years. Fifteen years. That's right. Um, And our path has taken us through different countries and all the way through graduate school, eventually landing us at the same university where we have jobs now. And it seems like it was very smooth, but in fact it was more or less completely unplanned. It just happened to work out so well that we ended up together in the same place. And a lot of it was fortuitous, I'd say. Would you, Al? I think there is a little bit more planning than you're leading people to believe. I think we did make plans with the other in mind from pretty much 2003 onwards, you think, Josh? Before then, we didn't. <laughs> but, but from the time we got about a year into our marriage, we actually were long-distance married for the first year. And we decided this is just not how we want to live. <laughs> and so... From then on, I I think that Josh or I, before we made a move, would always consider what the other person probably needed both then and down the line. And so it meant that at certain points, one of us had to make a decision about the next step in our career very early relative to our peers. 
But I do think there have been lots of times when we did something that wasn't very planned. For instance, just somebody following somebody somewhere. And we thought that it wouldn't be necessarily a great thing for the following end of the couple, and it ended up being great. So that is the serendipity piece of it. The best example of that is probably when I followed Alice to England. When I met her, I was still a sophomore in college, and Alice was a senior. So she was two years ahead of me. And of course, she went on and graduated and won a fellowship to go to England. I was stuck back in Boston without her and eventually decided to get up and leave college and spend a year at Oxford, more or less just to pursue my girlfriend there. But when she was there, she was in the zoology department, whereas I was in the math department. And I started to spend afternoons over in the zoology department just over tea and got to speaking to some evolutionary biologists there and found that they had tons of fascinating questions to think about. And so the sum total of this is that I went all the way to England really just to pursue my girlfriend, but I came back in love with evolutionary biology as well. And so that was completely fortuitous. How I fell into biological sciences was all tied up with how Alice and I stayed together through college and beyond. Well, that that's terrific. Alice, I did want to ask you another part of your story that I, I must work in on behalf of all of us English majors. <laughs> you, sure. act, you actually started out uh, specializing in poetry. So what, what led you to turn to medicine and neuroscience? Yeah, so I was a writer. And that's, I think, what Josh was referring to in terms of our having known each other before our, our present guises, which actually influences a lot of how we interact with each other. And I actually think if you speak to many neuroscientists, it's not at all confusing to them how somebody who was an English major or any kind of person in the arts might end up as a neuroscientist. What I mean by that is that I think the abiding interest was always in understanding human behavior, right? I think that's what, as a writer, I was interested in, and certainly that's what informs what books I like to read. And I think that when you're a creative writer, you are trying to understand your own experience and understanding the experiences of um, people you see. And you try to convince people that the reason that things are the way they are is because of a visceral feeling. And you're able to convey that if your art is very good. As a neuroscientist, you're going about it sort of differently. You're going about it at the level of genes and channels. But the interest is the same. The interest is why do we behave the ways we do? And I think that for me, I liked the rigor that science offers. And the other piece of it, why I became a doctor, that is a two-part explanation. I think one part of it has to do with the fact that I came from a huge family of doctors. So there was a lot of emphasis on being a doctor, which I resisted for a long time. The other piece of it, though, and this is the piece that now, as I have a family of my own, I, I think about, is I want a sense of social good to come from my life's work. And I think that the way that sort of interest in why we behave the way we do and interest in having social good coming out of your life and also just interest in making my parents happy (laughs) converged was for me to become a neurologist, neuroscientist, and I'm really happy doing it. Well, that that's terrific. Uh, So we've we've got you both in your actual scientific careers at this point. How did it work out that both of you ended up there at Penn? We came back from England, um, and Alice attended medical school at Harvard, 
whilst I was attending graduate school at Princeton, and we were separated for that period of time, which was a bit painful, especially because we actually got married during that period of time that we were separated. I returned to Harvard to do a postdoc while Alice was doing her residency, and it was at that point that we decided we would never agree to separation any further in the future, and so we really planned our next move together. And since she needed to do a fellowship after residency, and I had already done a postdoc, it was time for me to look for faculty positions, and at that point, we really just constrained our search to places where we sort of could both be happy. And found that the University of Pennsylvania offered wonderful ecology and evolution group for me, as well as a really rich neuroscience community for Alice. And so I accepted a faculty position here, knowing that it would have hopefully work out for Alice as well in the near ter- in the near future. And we delayed actually coming here for two full years so that Alice could finish her residency in Boston before we actually made the move to the University of Pennsylvania and to Philadelphia. At the exact same time, I should mention that we moved to Philadelphia. We, of course, changed jobs. We bought a new house, and Alice was pregnant with our first child. Unexpectedly pregnant. So essentially everything changed that first year. And yeah. um, But at the same time, we all sort of came together, yeah. and so it was wonderful. I came to the University of Pennsylvania as a postdoc, and Josh came as a faculty member. So in 2010, when I was done with my postdoc and I was ready to launch a lab, there was a question of whether I would only look at the University of Pennsylvania or if we would then look around as a couple. And that's a hard choice because it means that the other partner might have to think about uprooting what they've built over the last three years. But one of the deals Josh and I have had always for each other is that we would always consider kind of the sum total. So as a consequence, Josh and I both looked again at places that would work for both of us. And it actually helped a lot in terms of, I I did stay at the University of Pennsylvania, but in terms of having that freedom to look around and to actually have other offers has actually influenced everything about my faculty career here. And so I think that for people who are academic spouses, just having that ability to help each other and with mobility, if necessary, is really very good. (laughs) Even if you don't end up moving, yeah. Yeah. Well, that that's terrific, and it's great that it's worked out so well for both of you. Now, you've got a couple of kids now, and yep. flash-forwarding to the present, how are things working out with both of you having demanding scientific careers and demanding family life as well? We have a five-year-old son. He was born uh, right when I started my postdoc, a little bit unplanned that he was coming so early. And then we have a seven-month-old daughter, I think that it's always being negotiated. It's always being sort of reinvented. But I think that you figure out what works. There are times that I am the person who does more of the child rearing. And, for instance, right now our seven-month-old is still nursing. Josh mm-hmm. obviously mm-hmm. cannot do that. <laughs> right. And so I the sharing thing piece. can only go just so exactly, far, Exactly, right? <laughs> exactly. So I take care of that piece, and it means I'm a little tireder right now. But I think that what Josh does is he, he manages our five-year-old very much. <laughs> and that takes some effort, I should say. <laughs> <laughs> and we often get asked stuff like, how do you have a work-life balance, or how do you separate out your life from your work? And, and, and Josh and I actually don't separate out our life from our work. And, and, and for better or worse, this works for us, meaning that our children have 
been in our labs <laughs> when uh, that has been necessary for various reasons or for interest because our five-year-old now is actually very interested in science. And similarly, I think that our family life, it, it's influenced by the fact that we are scientists. I, certainly, I look at my children and I look at how they're behaving and I think about what's going on in their brains all the time. So, yes, that's right, Alice. I mean, especially Linus, who's now five, knows a lot of the members of our research teams by name and might even request to spend some time with them on the weekends, which has actually happened once or twice. And that's because he comes into lab once in a while because, you know, he might have a doctor's appointment or something and we might have some downtime where I just will bring him to the lab or Alice will bring him to her lab. And since we live close enough to work, this all manages to work out. And the people in the lab seem to enjoy it as well. So it's not as if we have a work-life balance. We just have a work-life mixture. Josh, I understand that the funding each of you received from the Burroughs Welcome Fund actually played a fairly pivotal role in this story. Tell us more about that, and I'm sure that the uh, the fund folks will be tickled to hear about these consequences of their largesse. Oh, I'd be happy to do that, Ernie, in part because it's just such a joy to recount. As you said, the, the Burroughs Welcome Fund funding, which... Alice and I each have slightly different flavors of uh, grants from the Brothers Welcome Fund, but in both cases, they're career awards that are specifically designed to help scientists transition from a postdoc period to their first faculty position. And I would say easily the funds that the Burroughs Welcome Fund provided were, in fact, essential for both of our transitions to faculty members. And largely that's because it's not so much the dollar amount of the funds, but it's the way in which the Burroughs Welcome Fund views how you can use these funds. It's completely, in some sense, unrestricted, and they support... They invest in the person, I think, and that's... That's right. They support, they support the, the person more than the specific research project. And so there have been plenty of times where I've called the Burroughs Welcome Fund up and asked, well, could I use the funds for this purpose or for that purpose? And sometimes these are purposes like to take the lab out for a retreat because they really need to celebrate this recent paper. And those folks at the BWF said, of course, you can use the funds however you think will further your research and your career. And that kind of flexibility is just priceless, honestly. And I would say every single BWF dollar I have is worth five NIH dollars I have just because of the flexibility that, that the fund allows us to use. <laughs> yeah, so. And and I think it's also the fact that it it comes early in your career. And early in your career, you need to be launching many different things and maybe taking those kinds of risks. And um, and and the fact that you can do that as a postdoc, which is what happened to me, um, is huge because it means that you can launch things that are all your own, different from your postdoctoral mentors. And in my particular case, I stayed at the University of Pennsylvania, which is um, always kind of a tricky thing if you're going to stay in the same institution you postdoc'd in. But because of my Burroughs Welcome funded projects, I had been able to do things that were sort of different in both methodology and flavor from uh, my postdoctoral lab. And so it was very easy to transition to being an independent investigator. Folks, that is a terrific story, and one that I'm sure will provide real hope and inspiration to many of our listeners who may be struggling with the types of issues you've been able to overcome so gracefully. Moving on, we certainly want to spend our remaining time focusing on your scientific pursuits. Alice, let's start with you. As I mentioned earlier, in your lab, you study two particular neurodegenerative diseases, frontotemporal dementia and Parkinson's disease. Tell us first about your work with frontotemporal dementia. What is that, and how have you worked to identify 
a suspected risk gene for the condition. Frontotemporal dementia is the second most common cause of dementia in people under the age of 65, and it's probably number three or number four for people older than age 65. So it's actually fairly common, though it isn't recognized frequently. Frequently people just call it dementia or people assume it's Alzheimer's, but it's actually a different disease process. It manifests clinically differently because the the deficits that develop are primarily in language and in behavioral control as opposed to in memory, which is what you see in Alzheimer's disease. The frontotemporal dementia work was actually the work that was funded by the Burroughs Welcome Fund. And I had the great fortune of landing in a lab right at the time that they were discovering a protein that accumulates in the brains of people with frontotemporal dementia. So for a very, very long time, dating back 100 years or so, it was well recognized that people with this kind of dementia would shrink their frontal lobes and their temporal lobes, uh, therefore the name, and that if you looked at the brains under a microscope, you could see that there were inclusion bodies inside the neurons, but it was not known what was inside those inclusion bodies. And so at the time I entered my postdoc, uh, my postdoctoral mentor had just, through brute force <laughs> biochemistry and uh, immunological methods, identified the protein in those inclusions, which you know had been a mystery for a long time, as a protein called TDP43 or TAR DNA binding protein 43. And this actually revolutionized the field because uh, it went from being a very heterogeneous, clinically heterogeneous pathologically kind of disease to a situation where you could classify things with some knowledge of what might actually be the underlying cause. And so we took advantage of the fact that we could now classify this disease in a more precise way to do genome-wide association study. These are very common. And the underlying idea is just you find a bunch of people, (laughs) or in this case brains from people, who have a trait and a bunch of people who don't. And we now live in an era where you have technologies that let you sort of saturation genotype. So you can look at genotypes across the genome, million markers at a time, and see if some markers are represented more frequently in people with the trait versus without. And so we took this approach to frontotemporal dementia, and as a consequence, we discovered a genetic risk factor called transmembrane protein 106B. And if you are a scientist, you can probably tell from the name that this is not a protein that's well characterized. (laughs) It was pretty much minimally characterized. Even the transmembrane part of it was kind of putative. And so we had a new genetic risk factor for a disease that is incurable and fatal. And we did not know what it did. (laughs) And we did not know how it worked. What's happened subsequently is that my lab has been trying to figure out both why there's a genetic signal there, how can a variation in your code then translate into something that increases your risk for a disease. And it turns out that uh, what is probably happening is that there's a specific genetic variant that changes your expression levels of this protein, and we're working out the exact mechanism, and then we're working out the consequences of too high expression, which is what we see with increased disease risk. And I'm excited about it because, as I mentioned, genome-wide association studies are very common. There have probably been thousands of these done. Every issue of Nature Genetics is genome-wide association studies. 
But the follow-through from genetic signal to causal variant to disease mechanism is very rare. That's probably happened less than 10 times, and I think we're going to do that. So that's what we're trying to do in FTD. Okay, well, that is very exciting. (laughs) But you describe yourself, first and foremost, as a Parkinson's disease doctor. I am. And uh, you're, you're using, but you're using similar unbiased genome-wide approaches to discovering uh, novel biomarkers for Parkinson's. Tell us a little bit about that. Once I had a lab of my own and enough resources to kind of have a diversified portfolio, uh, I wanted one piece of it to be really related to my clinical life. And the thought was that we live in this incredible time where we can use technologies that let you look in an unbiased way at hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, millions of signals and pick the best one. And I thought, why can't we use this approach to look in Parkinson's disease too? But rather than looking for a genetic risk factor, I wanted to do something very translational. And I wanted to do something that I thought was going to influence my own patients within my lifetime and even perhaps their lifetime, which is a harder goal. And so we have used these kind of unbiased screening approaches of, in this case, hundreds of proteins in blood to find what we think are the best markers for different disease states, different prognoses, and maybe even kind of a sense of modifiable risk in Parkinson's disease. Well, Josh, let's turn to you. Would you give us a broad overview of the research agenda that you are pursuing based upon mathematical biology? Sure. Well, it's, of course, quite different from what Alice is pursuing. I work in the field of molecular evolution, which is studying how evolution proceeds at the molecular scale. Um, The kinds of questions we ask are, I think, the kinds of questions that anyone would ask about evolution. Most people who think about evolution are immediately struck by how impossible it all seems. You know, how did something as complicated as a human or even just a vertebrate eye evolve from such simple things as a single-cell bacterium? How can we comprehend this sort of tremendous evolutionary transition, which occurred over the course of three billion years, by the way. How do, how do we address those questions? And fortunately, the main tool we have in our favor is DNA. The study of evolution went through a revolution of sorts when DNA was discovered because DNA provides a kind of common currency for comparing individuals within and between species. And as a result, evolution has moved slowly from a qualitative field, like it was when Darwin originated the field, to what is now becoming a much more quantitative subject that can even benefit from mathematics. So we can now precisely ask what mutations allow an organism to adapt to its environment, what determines the pace at which adaptation occurs, and how do mutations act in consort with one another to provide some sort of phenotypic change, either a change of the protein structure or some sort of macroscopic change in the cell morphology or the growth rate of the cell. And my research is is an attempt to develop mathematical models that allow us to pose these questions in very precise ways and then leverage experimental data to infer the answers to the questions. The data that we use typically comes from evolving microbes, um, either laboratory populations of bacteria or wild populations of viruses. And these types of organisms provide many advantages for studying quantitative details of evolution simply because they evolve so quickly. Take flu, for example. In flu, the antigenic proteins that evolved most rapidly have undergone about 30% of substitutions. 30% of their sites have, have substituted over the past decade or so. And that's about the equivalent of, 10 of about 10 million years worth of evolution in a typical mammalian protein. 
And so what we have compressed over a very reasonable time scale, like a decade, is a, is a tremendous amount of evolution occurring right in front of us. And better yet, since public health officials collect and sequence thousands of flu strains every year, we know the complete genetic record of all of the virus's evolutionary course. And so finally, armed with this sort of high-fidelity genetic record of evolution, we can hope to actually pinpoint what specific mutations or constellations of mutations allowed the virus to adapt, allowed it to escape the pressures of the human immune system or escape the pressures of drugs. And so in the end, although the questions that I think we're asking to begin with are fairly large and sort of philosophical, the kind of mathematical techniques we're using, I think, can even produce, hopefully, in the end, some practically useful results. Alice and Josh, you're both doing great scientific work, and you are living role models for balancing a thriving scientific career with a healthy marriage and family life. We wish you the best of luck for continued success, and thanks so much for joining us today on Focus in Sound. Thanks. Thank you, too, Ernie. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of the Focus in Sound podcast. Until next time, this is Ernie Hood. Thanks for listening.